Well, take that Bible this morning and look back over to 1 John. We are going to finish the third chapter today, 1 John chapter 3. And we've just been studying that little section there at the end in verses 19 through 24. And I've titled this message, Assurance Before God. Assurance Before God. Obviously, when we speak of Fred Patton today, as we were at the hospital with him and their family, and I don't know about you, but my mind goes back to two weeks ago. Do you remember that when Fred prayed? That will be, for me, how I remember Fred praying the Scriptures. But when Fred passes into glory, all of his days were numbered, right, as they are for each of us when there was not one. He went instantly into glory. That is assurance. The assurance of salvation is to know that you're not, well, kind of hopeful, sort of, maybe. No, John said, here in the Word of God, these things I write to you that you may know you have eternal life. And really, that's what he put that book together for. He arranges this argument, if you will, to give you confidence uh, that you are the children of God and thus you should know. I mean, even this morning, you should know what would happen if something were to happen to you on this day. Now, we come to the section here where, again, he's just marshalling this argument out on what assurance looks like. Pick it up and follow with me as I just read those scriptures. 1 John three nineteen through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, he is, again, addressing that issue of assurance. If you just glance down with your eyes, see it again in verse 19. He opens with this phrase. He says there, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. And so he wants us to know that. If you glance down at verse 24, it says that, we, that God abides in God and God in him. Verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us. And so there's this assurance given. In fact, if you look there in your Bible in verse 19, where it says that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And in verse 21, it speaks of having confidence before God. Now, you remember in this argument, look again at verse 19. 19. By this we shall know we are of the truth. He's building that off of what he has just said in 1 John 3, 11 through 18. By this we shall know to find out, to discover that we are in the truth. And for John, John said there in that previous section that loving one another and that love put into action gives evidence that you are of the truth. And so when you think of 
Fred Patton, he loved people. He was of the truth. You say, did he love the truth itself? Certainly. Did he love God? Certainly. But he also loved the people of God. And what John is saying here is that when these characteristics are yours, they demonstrate, in fact, look at the word again in 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Back up in verse 18, where he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so he told us to love one another. And so John then, what he does here is set forth three blessings of assurance that arise in the heart of a believer by putting love into action. In other words, as you put this love into action, your heart, if you will, will gain assurance because it's demonstrating that you are of God. Now, we're looking at those three blessings. They are the assurance of residing or living in the truth, the assurance of coming to God in prayer, and the assurance of our union with the Holy Spirit. We began last week by looking at first, the practice of love will produce the assurance that of living in the truth, okay? And that's verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. In other words, if you love the brethren, then your heart will be reassured of your standing in Christ. It's really a, a, I don't know if it's a backdoor way to grant this assurance, but when he says, I've written these things that you may know you have eternal life, one of the reasons you know is you love the brethren. You love the body of Christ. And so he's dressing here the confirming heart. And so love of the brethren is the objective test of our profession. It is not sentiment. It is not emotion, but an active love in deed and in truth. And so here, loving others certainly is not the basis of our salvation, but it is, John would say, the result of it, and it provides assurance that we indeed are the children of God. So here we look last week is the confirming, the confirming heart. Enough for me, and I've said it before in the weeks past, do do you love the body of Christ? Do you love the people of God? In other words, you can't make a profession and not love the body of Christ. You can't say you're a believer and not love one another. If you say you love one another and your faith is real, then it will be demonstrated in this confirming heart that you love the brethren. But then secondly, we noted actually two weeks ago, the condemning heart. Remember that in verse 20? If you weren't there, get that tape, listen online. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And we spoke both about the confirming heart and now the condemning heart. In other words, sometimes we can, be sub- we can let our subjective feelings run wild at times. Sometimes our mind will even remind us of how dirty we are, how pitiful we are. And then sometimes we begin to lose that assurance. And we spoke two weeks ago that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us before God day and night. And so sometimes we lose that assurance. And sometimes when you begin to go too far down that introspective track, 
you lose sight of that reality. But look what, look what John said there in verse 20. He said, whenever our heart condemns us, I love this. He said, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. In other words, there is a higher court than the human heart. God knows everything, including the secrets of our heart, and will be merciful towards us. Enough that I said a couple weeks ago that God is greater than our oversensitive, overactive, misinformed conscience, and even sometimes, for some of you, morbid introspection. Sometimes that causes us to lose assurance. I said much on that a couple weeks ago, but I've obviously, in the 25 years, have counseled many people. You know, where is that fine line? Where is it? I, I don't always know. That fine line when Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith, and to truly examine your heart to see if you're in the faith, that is a scriptural principle. But where does it cross the line where you become so introspective, so conscientious, which is what I call an oversensitive, you know, overreactive, misinformed conscience that you tie yourself in a knot and you begin to wonder if you've lost it all. Well, John here just says, listen, in the case of a confirming heart, you'll reassure your heart. But even in the case at times when you struggle with doubts, I love what he said, God is greater than our hearts, okay? So there are times when we must say with Peter, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, and again, this is his argument from the book. Don't ever forget that Jesus Christ is your, in 2-1, what is he? Your advocate. He is the righteous one, and he is your advocate before the Father in heaven. He is the one who is granting that assurance. So either way, John says, our heart is assured, uh, or God is greater than our heart, and he knows that we are his. But as we practice love, it will produce the assurance of living in the truth. And I would say this to you as we come to this text now, as we find our starting point. When self-condemnation is gone, when our hearts are stabilized before him, we will enjoy the confidence in our relationship with God through prayer. So I bring you there on your outline here to that second principle that the assurance, practice of love will produce the assurance of confidence before God in prayer. Fascinating text. Look at it in 21. He says, beloved, he says, if our heart does not condemn us, he says, we have confidence before God. So even though our heart may condemn us a dozen times a day, we can be sure that the Lord accepts us in spite of our shortcomings, and we, you, can still come to God in prayer you can still pour out your heart before him and speak with him regarding your request and regarding your needs. And I just say this because this seems to be the transition in the text. We can beat ourselves up sometimes. And may I say some of this, when we do that, is pride lurking in our hearts. But when you are resting in Christ, when you are seeking to love one another, 
then John would say, then you can run to Christ in prayer. So, so watch this. Let, let's look first at that little point there, the confidence in prayer. Look at it in verse 21. He says, he says if your heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And he's moving here to the item of prayer. When you have this type of assurance, when you love one another, okay, then you can have the confidence. And, and the, the word there is the freedom of speech. In other words, you could come, the text says there in 21, before God. You can come before God. And in the language, it's, I like the, the, the phrase, it's proston theon. Literally, you can come face to face with God in prayer, and you can come with confidence, unhindered by fear, unhindered by shame. In other words, it is the openness of a child is the picture approaching his father. And certainly this is not a proud arrogance, but a heart that is simply not condemned because it's practicing the truth. Now, you remember that word? We've seen that word there in 21. We have confidence before God. That word confidence was used in another setting. Look back at 228. Let me just remind you of that. Remember there, he was talking about having confidence before the judgment day. In 2.28, John said, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, here's that word, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And so there was this aspect of developing confidence before God on the day of judgment. But here, when he uses this phrase, we can have confidence before God, He's relating it to prayer because look at the next verse in verse 22. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay? And so he's relating it to prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive. As you come before God at the end of 21, as you come face to face in relationship with God, you ask and you receive such confidence, is it not? I mean, just think about your relationship with Christ. Because of his work, you can have confidence to go into the presence of God. I'm thinking of the writer of Hebrews when he said in 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Listen, you can confidently go before God, go before His throne. It is not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace. And as you come face to face with God in prayer, you will receive mercy. You will find grace to help in time of need. This is the testimony of the Scripture. Paul said it this way, writing to the church at Ephesus, when he said in chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. You see, when, when Jesus Christ redeems our soul, rather than looking at God as judge, we see God as Father. And here in the attitude of prayer, as we love one another, it produces within us a confidence to come before God, not out of shame, not out of fear, but with boldness, if you will, unhindered by fear, unhindered by shame. So here John says love for one another 
produces confidence, and confidence results in what he says is answered prayer. Now, now look at the text. You've wondered about this. It says there in 22, whatever we ask, we, what? Receive. Now, we're, we're well aware of that statement. It is in the Word of God. Whatever we ask, we receive. You're familiar with Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and it will be what? It will, it will be open to you. Seek, and you will find so forth. For everyone who asks, receives. All you got to do is ask, and you'll receive. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And so here that scripture says, ask, and you shall receive. But you'll note, though, okay, that you, you pray that, but there's conditions on that prayer. Look at verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Here's, here's the condition. Because it says that we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In other words, as you come to prayer, you ask, you receive. But here's the conditions. You, the condition is you keep his commandments. Now, again, as we've saw all the way through 1 John, this is a present tense pattern of obedience. It certainly doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that the pattern, the direction of your life is obedience. You are keeping his commandments. In fact, look back at 1 John chapter 2. Do you remember that there? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By this we know we have come to know him if... We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so here's this confidence to pray, but this prayer must be met by this condition of keeping his commandments. Look back over to the right there in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, he would say this in verse 2. By this we know the love By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God, and he says, and obey his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So here as he's addressing this issue of assurance of coming to God in prayer, We have confidence, but there's a condition. It's because we keep his commandments. Look again at verse 22 there. It says, not only do we keep his commandments, but we do what, what does it say? What pleases him. In fact, Jesus, his life in John 8, 29, he said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we're home or away, he says, we make it our aim to please him. So what John says then is when these conditions are met, whatever we ask, we receive from him. I want to be clear here. This is not to say that an obedient lifestyle merits or guarantees answered prayer. It was the great theologian John Stott who said obedience he said, is the indispensable condition, but it is not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. 
It's the condition, but it's not the cause. Listen, even when obedience is there, even when we please him, this does not give us the right to get everything from God we ask of him. And so I must just clarify this for you, right? That's why we're here this morning. We want to know what the word means. You and I have both known people, the type, it seems like it's an 80s doctrine, the name it and what? Claim it, people. You name it, claim it by faith, it's yours. In fact, when you read this at the outset, you would say, hey, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Except even in this text, you have to say, hold on, time out. There's a condition to it. Of course there's a condition to it. It says, because when we ask, we receive. Because when we ask, it says there, we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. But, but be clear, God is not indulgent. God is not some kind of utilitarian genie that simply rewards his children with every request, obviously. God knows what a spoiled, self-centered child we would become. Some things, would you not agree that you could ask for, would even harm you. If you gave your children everything they asked, you would be in big trouble, would you not? So listen, God here is in the business of drawing us to himself. He wants us to obey his commandments. He desires to please him. But the condition that he lays down here is that we do keep his commandments and that we do, pleases him. We do what pleases him. Now, now listen, there's other conditions laid down in the scripture as well. So here's just a quick theology of prayer. You say, what are the conditions? Well, we don't have time, but let me just highlight a few. Number one, when you ask, you must ask according to his, what? His will. Look over at 1 John 5, okay? 1 John 5, 14, okay? And these are, these are the statements you see. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, and then it's qualified, According to his will, he, what? He hears us. And so when we pray, we come confidently. But when you ask, you must ask according to his will. And of course, our Lord Jesus did this all the time, did he not? When he was in the garden, he said, If it be your will, let this, what? Cup pass from me, but not my will be done, what? Your will be done. So praise God that that the cup, you know, that that, that that request wasn't answered, that Jesus actually submitted. So listen, yes, we can ask. Yes, we can receive. But in this context, you've got to keep his commandments. You've got to do what's pleasing to him. In 1 John 5, 14, you must ask according to his will, okay? In fact, look over at John 15. Let me show you a second principle there. Not only must you ask according to his will, but I would put it this way. You must abide in Christ. You must abide in Christ. These are basic principles here. In John 15, 7, you remember in that great passage there, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be what? Done for you. But very clearly, before you ask and before it's done, you must abide in me and my words must abide in you. And so here, fanning out this theology of prayer, 
You've got to pray according to his will. You must abide in Christ. I would say this thirdly, you must ask in his name. Look over at John chapter 16. John chapter 16. These statements are all over the place. There in the gospel of John, Jesus said this, and that day you will ask nothing of me. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, here's the condition, in my name, he will give it to you. But you've got to ask according to the character and the nature and the name and all that that name represents of God. And so we sometimes say, in Jesus' name. In other words, we're putting and couching our prayer that it would be pleasing to him, that it would represent him, that it would represent his path, his pattern, and his commandments. So you've got to abide in Christ. You've got to be able to ask in his name. I would say this, is it fourth? You've got to be able to ask in what? Faith. Look over at the book of James just for a second, and I think you know this one well. You do have to ask, but when you ask, the condition is you've got to ask in faith. Look over at James chapter 1, and certainly you remember that context there in the midst of trials, and sometimes you don't understand always what the Lord is doing. It says there that you may be perfect at the end of 1-4, that you may be complete. And then he uses this phrase at the end of verse 4, that you may be lacking in nothing. In other words, God puts a trial into your life that you would look perfect, that you would become complete, which is just another way to say that you would become fully mature. In fact, he brings trials into your life. Are you not thankful for that? Or we would stay spiritual babies all of our life. He brings you down certain paths and certain roads that you and I cannot understand. You're moving about in the Christian life, and it, it, just as it says there in 1 2, you count it all joy, my brothers, when you, it says there, when you meet various trials. That word for meet there, trials of various kinds, it's the ideal of falling into trials. In fact, the, the word was used of the man who was on his way to Jericho and he fell amongst the thieves. But that's kind of like a trial. You're moving about your life and you become surrounded by these trials and they're to produce Christ in you. You say, but sometimes I don't understand. And so look at verse 5. When you don't understand, if any of you lacks wisdom, he wants to do the trial so you lack in nothing. Play on words, verse 5. But if you lack wisdom, then let him, it says right here, ask of God. Who gives, what a wonderful promise, generously, liberally is the thought, to all, not just to some, not just to leaders, or not just to pastors. If you ask God for wisdom, he will give liberally, he will give generously, he will give to all of you, he will give it to you without reproach, he will never reproach you, hey, I... I You prayed for it once and I gave it and you spurned it. I'm not going to give it again. God's not like that. He'll just give it without reproach. He'll give you the wisdom you need because it says there at the end of verse 5, and it will be given. So you just ask and he'll give you wisdom. However, but, look at verse 6, let him ask in what? Faith. So there's a condition, okay? You got to be able to abide in Christ. You got to ask in his name. You've got to Ask in faith here, look at the text, with no what? Doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose 
that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But very clearly here, when you ask, you must ask in faith, believing God to give you the wisdom. Okay? So here's how you fill this out. You, yeah, ask and receive. But in our context, you've got to keep his commandments. In our context, you've got to have a life that is pleasing to him. In the greater context of the scripture, you've got to pray it according to his will. You've got to abide in Jesus Christ. You must put that prayer within all that his name is. And you've got to ask in faith. And I'd add one to it. One more. You must ask with right motives. Look over at James chapter 4. James chapter 4. You've seen this before, where he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you is not, is it not this, that your passions are at what? War within you. You desire and you do not have, so you, what? Murder. See the football player? Killed himself yesterday. I think the biggest question that people ask is, Why? Why would a guy do that? Why would a guy just shoot his girlfriend who had his daughter point blank right multiple times? Then, then he goes to the practice facility and he shoots himself. And Well, here's why. And I'm not trying to be rude over that. But it says right there. It says you desire and you do not have so you, what? You murder. So something happened. He just must have snap somewhere. Something was going wrong, but this is what can happen. He says, look at verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now watch this. You do not have because you do not what? Ask. Verse 3, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your what? Passions. So you can ask God with wrong motives. He's not going to answer that prayer. So I'm just trying to fill this out for you. When you get in some backgrounds of the charismatic theology, they would put all the emphasis on you that you don't have enough faith. But listen, you could be praying things with a wrong motive. You could be praying things for your own flesh. Listen, those prayers aren't going to be answered. Listen, if you want God to answer your prayer, there's another condition Look over at Mark chapter 11. I'm just trying to fill this out for you a little bit. And, and certainly you know this, Mark chapter 11. It, it, you, it's not that he's like a genie that you rub, but in Mark chapter 11, in verse 25, I loved the gospel of Mark teaching through it. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may, what? Forgive you and your trespasses. <laughs> wow. You better forgive. Because practically, in a, relational, in a relationship with Christ vertically, you're going to stand opposed to Him, not on that, remember that forgiveness that we talked about is your position, but that per forgiveness that is parental. Listen, you can't hold a grudge against somewhere else. Because if you do, your Father in heaven won't forgive your practical sins against another. He's going to hold that against you. So again, not in terms of your salvation, but in terms of your paternal relationship with God the Father. So listen, you can ask, but listen, 
You can't ask and receive if you're holding out forgiveness towards someone else. Do you see how all the scripture comes into this? You can't just, I mean, ultimately, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Ask, and you'll receive. Ask him for a car. This is what you've seen on some of the TV evangelists. Ask him for a house. Ask him for a healing. You know, the reason you're still sick is you do not have enough, what? Faith. But listen, when I read the Bible, I have a lot of conditions that prayers met. I read about keeping his commandments. I read about doing what's pleasing to him. I read about asking according to his will, about abiding in Jesus Christ, about asking in his name, about asking in faith, about asking with right motives, and that for you to ask, you must forgive others. And finally, you don't have to turn to it, but just you must not harbor sin. You can't harbor sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So you can't harbor sin. So here, though, is the continual obedience in John's text and the striving to please him that John states are the conditions for answered prayer. But listen, I don't want to leave it there. Look back at 1 John. What a promise, though, right? In this context, what an encouragement. As we seek to obey the Lord and obey his word, and as we do what pleases him, As we practice the truth and love one another, listen, our desires become his desires and we want his will and we want his glory and not ours. And so our prayer begins to line up with God's prayer as we're walking in the Spirit. In fact, I like how Linsky said it. He said, every answer to our petitions is the clearest factual evidence that he treats us as his children. And so here's this wonderful assurance given to the children of God that you indeed are the children of God, is that you have an open face-to-face relationship with the living God. And when you come asking, you receive because your will's lined up with his will and his agenda is your agenda and his kingdom is what you're praying for. I mean, even for us as a church, I mean, don't think you're going to come, you know, to our dinner and hear this big rah-rah speech. We want to pray, don't we? Lord, we want your will for this church. Lord, open a piece of land up for our church. Open a place up that would be a home for us. Lord, we want your kingdom to be expanded. Lord, we want not just Kingsburg. We want the Central Valley to be reached. We want the word of God to go forth. Ultimately, all we're doing is praying this. Lord, we want your glory seen in the local church. But this is really not about Grace Church of the Valley, is it? Our vision is the vision of Scripture. Our vision is what we find in the Word of God. And so our vision, according to Ephesians 3.21, is to Him be the glory in the church. And we want our church to magnify and reflect, not us, but, but Him. And so you'll hear part of that. But we're just trying to line our prayer up with His prayer and His agenda. So John just says this, that loving the brethren produces assurance, number one, of living in the truth. Number two, it produces the assurance of coming to God in prayer. And third and finally, the practice of love will produce, thirdly, the assurance of our certainty with the Spirit. Look at the text in verse 23. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, now just a little footnote there. It's interesting if you go back when it says in verse 21, because we keep his commandments. And you might be left wondering, well, what commandments? Well, John's going to articulate it in verse 23. But he doesn't say, and these are his commandments. He actually just says it just one commandment. He said, this is the commandment. And then what he does is he tells us two things, to believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. And so here's the thought, is that neither is sufficient without the other. Your faith in Christ and your love for one another go together. And what John does is state the irreducible minimum of what Christianity is all about. He states what I would say is the summary of his entire epistle. And he gives us two commandments, but he calls them one commandment. But let's look at those, those com- that command that he gives us. Look again down in verse 23. He says, and this is the commandment, and here's the first one, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that he puts believe there in what we would call the aorist tense. It kind of looks back. And he's calling back to a a specific, definite action and point in time. In other words, it's a once and for all call to action. He says there in 23, we must believe in his name. And this is the thought, that you have assurance when you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This is where assurance is bound up. It's going to lead to the union with the Spirit. But before he speaks on that, he addresses the person of Christ. You've got to get the person of Christ correct. And in this passage, he calls him here his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, this is all throughout John's epistle. Look back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, speaking of the person of Christ. He said, who is a liar... But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the what? Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What a statement. No one who denies the Son has the Father. There is no such thing as a relationship with God apart from the Son. There are not many different paths to salvation. There are many, not many different ways, as we say, that leads to Rome. It doesn't matter what the philosophy teachers say. It doesn't matter what 350 known religions say. The Word of God declares this, that no one who denies the Son has the Father. In fact, John would even be so clear that the one who denies the Son that Jesus is the Christ, is a liar. And so you've got to believe that. Look over at chapter 4 just for a second. We'll get there in the coming weeks. Chapter 4 and verse 2. John would be so clear to say there, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist. 
And so here, this thought of believing in Christ is the command that he's given to us. In fact, look over at chapter 5 in verse 1, and obviously he's battling the Gnostic false teachers here who denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. But he said in 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the whoever whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we are the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so here you've got to believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And as you do, you've been born of God. Glance down at chapter 5 and verse 5. There it says, Who is that? that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You've got to believe that. That is the commandment. That is the condition, if you will. In fact, keep going down in chapter 5. Look at verse 10. There so clearly John says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony about God or that God has been born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his, what, son. You know, as I think of Grace Church of the Valley in the future, we will always exalt Christ from the scripture, right? I just want you to know that's where my heart, you know, we're talking a building with brick and mortar, but the guts and the inner working of our church will always be doctrinal truth. In fact, look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. That's assurance, isn't it? Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In fact, go on to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And so, beloved, you've got to believe in the person of Christ. Now, let me get a little bit more specific with you there. Look at the text again. This is the commandment that we, it says here, believe in him. Say, what is believe? It is to trust him. It is to have faith in Him. It is to rest all your confidence on the person of Christ. Now, I can compare that. It means that you're not putting the confidence in yourself. It means that you're not adding up your good works to get you into the presence of God. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you're putting your trust in Him. You're putting your faith in Him. You're resting all your weight upon Him because apart from Him, you can't get to heaven. And so this is what the gospel is. You are, verse 23, believing in the name of His Son. Now you'll note there, again in verse 23, you're believing in His name. And his name here stands for all that a person is and all that a person represents so that you're putting all of your confidence in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scripture. 
And enough for me to say that the language here brings out a relationship that involves a personal commitment of oneself to the person of Jesus Christ. That is what a Christian is. I don't know another way to explain it, but if you ask me what faith is, here's how the picture I see. But if, if I'm like really, 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 I might trip, leaning on this wall, if this wall wasn't here, what would happen to me? I mean, I'd easily fall over. I have all my weight on this wall. This is what a Christian is. You're putting all your weight on Jesus Christ. You're putting all your hope on Jesus Christ. You're trusting in his name for salvation in contrast to you trusting your own works, your own efforts, your own merits. That's what it means to believe on his name. And it involves a personal commitment. But look, there's more there in the text. It says that you're believing in, his, in the name of his, what? Son emphasizing at this point the deity and the unique sonship. In other words, he is the son of God. He's deity. That's unique sonship. That's God's son. But then look what else it says in verse 23. In the name of his son. And then it says Jesus. Okay? In other words, he's Lord and Jesus is emphasizing his humanity. You're putting all your weight and confidence in the person of his son, who's God, but he's Jesus, he's, he's, he's human, he came at the incarnation that we will celebrate in a few weeks, but then you'll note that he's not just Jesus, but he's, look what it says, Jesus Christ, you're affirming his Messiahship from the Old Testament. This is what it means to be a Christian. When you place all your confidence in his son, Jesus in his humanity, Christ that he's fully Messiah. He's both 100% man. He's both 100% God. And again, John's going straight after the Gnostic false teachers. But here Jesus is identified as both God's son and Messiah. The very fact the Gnostics denied. So listen, to believe in, him, in the name of Jesus Christ. And this, I'm preaching this for you. Because maybe there's some of you who don't know Christ is to place your faith in Christ for all that he is. He is the divine son. He is incarnate deity. In other words, he came in the flesh. He is the propitiation for our sins. And he is the savior of the world. And I can only ask, have you done that? Have, you say, well, how do you do that? Well, you place your trust in him. In other words, you come to the end of yourself. You come to the end of your way. You begin to see your sin keeping you from a holy God. And you recognize that your righteous deeds can't get you into his presence. The only thing you can do is fall down on your knees, beat your breast, and say, God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. And you place all your trust in Christ. I mean, that's what I did when I was 14, on my knees saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner and you are the Son of God and you put your trust and your hope in him. But then there's a second command. Look back down at the text. And this is the commandment. He said it's one, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. I think this is significant. Right action on the person of Christ follows right belief. Or to say it this way, right belief in his son 
and right behavior, loving one another, go together. Now, you're commanded to love one another. You know that. We've looked at that before in John 13, 34. This is new commandment I give to you. Jesus said that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to, are, are to love one another. Look back at John chapter 3, even in verse 11. He says there, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 3. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so here, this love that he loved us is, must be displayed by us in God's family. Now, look what he says here finally on the Spirit's confirmation. He says in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides, it says there, in God and God in him. Here just to this last point is the Spirit's confirmation. Because it says there in verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, he's telling us what assurance is all about. Assurance is this right belief. Assurance is the right action, loving one another. But assurance here is by abiding in him and he in us, and we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is a rich, rich text. It's talking about our union with Christ, about abiding in him and remaining in him and dwelling in him. In fact, this is confirmed. Look over just to the next chapter in 4.13 where it says, by this, we know that we, and again, that word, abide, we remain, we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us his, what? Spirit. What's so neat about this expression is, is there's like a, there's, there's a, a mutual indwelling. We abide in him, and he abides in us. And, and it's, it, look back at chapter 2, just for a second, in verse 6. This is what a Christian is and does. Whoever, he's, whoever says, and I like this phrase, that says he, speaking of the person, abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner in which he walked. But you'll note, go over to chapter 4, verse 12, that we just read a moment ago. Because in 2.6, it very clearly says he abides in him. But it says, no one has ever seen God, 4.12. If we love one another, God, what does it say? Abides in us. Incredible. We abide in him. But the scripture is actually saying, if you're a believer, God is abiding in you. If you will, look at 4.13 and watch the, the dual role here. 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he, what does it say? In us, because he's given us his spirit. Glance down at verse 15. Chapter 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in what? God. Incredible. Look at verse 4, 16. 4, 16, so we have come to know that we believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides, remains, dwells in God and God, what? Abides in him. You say, what do you mean he abides in him? I'm thinking of this text 
when Jesus said, 1423, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And it says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And fascinating. We will make God the Father, God the Son, and in other places the Spirit, will make our home with him. We will dwell in the life of that believer. And I'm thinking of John 15, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides by the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Remember Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. What an what a, what a incredible thought. In fact, close out the argument. Look at verse 23, 4. He says, and by this, that, that ideal of abiding, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Father has given us the Spirit. Now you say, what is that talking about? Assurance, and you know this, I've spoken on this, comes from the Spirit the Father has given us. All the things we have said are true. Obedience, loving the brethren, but one of the tangible ways you could really know you're a child of God is He's given you His Holy Spirit. The Father has given you the Holy Spirit. You say, well, when did, he, when did that happen? It looks to the moment of salvation when the Spirit was given to the believer at the point of regeneration. In other words, what John is saying this, it is a deep truth. The person, the work, the role of the Holy Spirit takes the historical reality of Christ, his life, his suffering on the cross, the fact of his resurrection, and he awakens our mind to the truth of Scripture evidenced by the transformation of life as seen in our obedience to Christ's command and love for one another. In other words, he awakens our soul. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you just realize they don't have their eyes opened yet? Have you ever, has that ever happened? And you just know that, you know, Lord, help. Lord, spirit, break through. Because you know in your life, in fact, somebody was telling me even this week, they led someone to Christ and instantly, within a week or two, the guy's a changed man. All of a sudden, what he never understood, he now understands. All of a sudden, what used to be confusing is now clear. That is the work of the Holy Spirit on the life. So what the Holy Spirit does is then assure our heart before God that we indeed are His children by the inner witness in our hearts. You say, well, Scott, can you explain that? I think just a little bit. Look over in Romans and we're going to be finished here. Look in Romans. You know, these are the statements, okay? It's the work of the Spirit. He says in 5.5, hope does not disappoint or does not put us to shame in 5.5 because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's been poured, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy all of a sudden it becomes clear. You understand. You understand the truth of Christ. You understand His deity. You understand His humanity. Why? The Holy Spirit is there. Look at Romans chapter 8. Just next page, a couple pages in 8.11. It says there, 
Great text. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our basically human spirit that we are the what? The children of God. And so here's the witness of the Holy Spirit. I like how John Stott put it. He said, it is he speaking of the Spirit's role, okay? It is he who inspires us to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It is he who empowers us to live righteously and to love the brethren so that we would assure our hearts, he said, when, we, uh, when they accuse or condemn us, we must look for the evidence of the Spirit's working and particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ and obey his commandments and to love the brethren. So here's what John does, beloved. He sets these three aspects of assurance that arise in the heart of a believer when we put love into action. The assurance of living in the truth, the assurance of coming to God in prayer, and the assurance of our union with the Spirit. And he will say so much more about that into chapter 4. Suffice to say, that will do it today. But listen, the, don't you live and walk in the Spirit and love the body of Christ. Amen.